the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. What would you do if your children or your spouse started questioning their sexual identity? And later, I watched the Hillsong documentary. Brian and I are going to talk about it. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Tuesday evening. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. So glad that you are with us today. Many of you recovering from Memorial Day. Brian and I talked about our Memorial Day weekends. If you missed it or you missed any of the earlier parts of our show, we'd love to invite you to go back and catch up on our podcast, wherever it is you cast those pods of yours. We love engaging with you on social media. We are at Common Good Talk on the apps. All right, Brian, I went to uh, Seattle, like I mentioned, over the weekend. And Seattle is notoriously... um, Full of coffee. Full of coffee. Full of coffee. Very rainy, although I had a beautiful sunny weekend. Wow, it was amazing there. But very progressive. That's right. Especially when it comes to gender identity and sexuality. Like, Brian, I don't even know how to explain this to you. Not just rainbow flags but multicolored flags all over every store every restaurant every house my friend that i was visiting she and i had to go online and be like what are the different flags and they all represent different type of sexuality so it was like it was a learning trip for me eyes were open to like (laughs) okay Welcome to Seattle. But here's the thing. While I was there, I had three different conversations with three different people. I don't really know. Friends of my friend. But can I can I tell you the three different scenarios yes, that I was faced with this weekend? One, a friend of my friend's has a teenage daughter who is now beginning to identify as a boy, mm. changing her name to a boy's name. These are all Christians. I want to be very clear about that. Christians, wow. church-going people, okay? Two, uh, I met a wife whose husband is starting to identify as a woman. And Whoa. I... Say that again. Uh, a wife yes. whose husband... Wow. Mm-hmm. And then a... Um, my, friend, uh, my friend has a friend whose daughter is now identifying as pansexual, which Mm. I think is just one way of sort of saying open to all options. Okay. Okay. Um, So I started, you know, and they're of course asking me, what do I think as a church leader and a pastor? And I'm like, I'll just be praying for you. This is really, really hard and complicated. And, you know, one of my friends in the past who I think I've mentioned on the show, she has said about this issue, man, I wish the church would step up and say more because um, the TikTok is discipling my kids in their sexuality because the church is being silent. But then I had a conversation with a friend this weekend who was like, I actually wish the church would just stop talking about this and accept and love everybody because it's a turnoff. Like it's actually made her walk away from the church. So there's Christians on all sides of this. These are three, of course, very extreme examples, but it was wild to me to come up against all of them 
this weekend or bump up against all of them this weekend. And I just wondered, like, pastorally, if this was maybe it's too hard to say if it was your kids or your spouse. But if someone is coming to you as a pastor with any of these issues, how are you pastoring them? I can't get over the spouse, the spouse one. one. Well, we could talk about that. I think that is the most difficult because no, it's an adult undoubtedly. man. An adult Un- man. And and just I mean, I'll be I'll be a little graphic here. She was saying that her husband has started to do things like shave his legs, paint his nails, grow his hair out. It's a little bit what we saw with Bruce Jenner on the Kardashians. You don't watch the Kardashians, but you did start to see Bruce Jenner kind of change into more like classically stereotypical feminine things. And I know men have long hair. Some some artsy sure, guys sure, paint sure. their nails. Like, but this is specifically because he's he's not necessarily saying he's transitioning. He's not even necessarily saying call me by a female name, but he's questioning she was saying and like trying some things on. Is she I'm sorry to get too personal here. No, it's is okay. she staying married to him? Well, right now she is. Again, I don't know her well. This is my friend's friend, but I right understand. now she is. I mean, I think Will she ultimately is the question, right? Depending on how it goes, like that one I don't is, know. That one is something. That one is something. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, to uh, to uh, to discuss your bigger question, what do you do if your loved one is questioning? I, I, I don't want to even pretend to know really well. Like that is. Yeah, yeah. I. <laughs> I don't want to be over dramatic, Aubrey, but I, in some ways, that's one of the things I think we as Christian parents would say is our one of our biggest fears, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's, yeah. Um, what do you do in that situation? I would. So I'm only speaking in the hypothetical here. Yeah. And I hope and pray in my life it remains the hypothetical. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I would like to think that I would be in on the ground floor with my kid. So we're having mm-hmm. these conversations from early on. Totally. And then I would like to think that I am also being honest with them. So not mm-hmm. just don't worry about it. It's right. a nothing thing. Right. But ultimately I would hope that I would love my kid really well. Yeah. Uh it, you know, like, and that would be really hard because people are probably thinking, what does love your kid look mm-hmm. like well in that situation? Mm-hmm. And I'm not exactly sure, mm-hmm. but I would. Can I want- tell you that what this one woman has decided to do? Because yep. she's a, she's a very faithful conservative Christian. So this is like very painful. Um, she has said in, um, if you, this, her her daughter has now changed her name to a boy's name. Wow. And so How she's. Old? Um, 17, maybe 18. Okay. Okay. Um, still at home though. Mm -hmm. So they have this family, this daughter, uh, knows what her parents think and believe, but they have said, okay, we'll honor your wishes by calling you by the boy's name outside of the home. And when we talk to other people, but when it's just us at home, can we please call you the name that we gave you we prayed over that name we and so there's some debate about that they are um you know they're loving her they're uh doing the best they can to continue to build relationship 
praying, getting lots of people behind the scenes praying. Um, and they are actually considering moving out of Seattle because they're realizing how big the influence is and do they need... You know, we make a lot of jokes about the, all the Chicagoans moving to Nashville, but it's kind of the same idea. I think it's so, so progressive, so influential. She's like, I think we might need to move our whole family. Interesting. And that's yes. a good call. I, I yeah. think, the, you know, I would tell my kid early on, hey, we're going to go to counseling as a family. We're going to find so a good too. Christian yeah. counselor. We're yeah. not, I'm not going to, you know. I think the worst thing you can do is probably just try to pretend it's not happening. Totally. Like just totally. pretend. Um, but man, I don't, again, Aubrey, I, like I said, I hope this remains in my own life hypothetical because what about I don't the spouse? Know. What do you do there? I think that's a more complicated that situation. That, I, I think I would be is, like, I'm out. I'm done. <laughs> right. Like mm -hmm. I don't, I, I would like to think that I would go through counseling and stay, mm -hmm. but if they started actually transitioning, it's like, I don't know what you do in that situation. Yeah. Like, I think I, the questioning you kind of go, okay, I'm going to lean into my vows to God here and stay faithful to this person. If the transition happens, that's really, cause you didn't make the vows to the, the new identity, right? You made right. the vows to the old idea, but it's complicated. It's certainly it's super is. complicated because I love my wife with all my heart. So would that all of a sudden break overnight? No. Like, what do you do? How do you, pro I don't know. And I, yeah, like that one, when you said, um, sadly, the other ones make sense to me because they're happening mm -hmm. all the time now. But that one, when you said that one, I was like, oh, the heaviness of that is, Ooh. I don't know how to navigate it. How do you navigate Sad. that with your own kids? How do you yeah. help them yeah. understand that about, I don't, that one's crazy. Yep. Yep. Lots for us to, lots of us Lots for us to pray about and think about as these issues. I mean, I think these are three extreme issues, but maybe not as abnormal as we think in the years mm -hmm. to come. All right. Coming up next, we are joined by David Jimenez, Senior Manager of Government Affairs at Prison Fellowship. We're going to talk about de-escalation and the role of police in light of some new statistics that uh, they've found at Prison Fellowship. Going to be a really, really interesting conversation with David when we return. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And we are thrilled to be joined by David Jimenez. He's a senior manager of government affairs at Prison Fellowship. We're going to talk about uh, de-escalation, the role of police, a lot more. Cannot wait to chat with you, David. Uh, thanks so much for being here with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I want to ask you just a big general question about Prison Fellowship. For our, our listeners who may not be familiar with your organization, tell us who you are and what you do. Absolutely. So Prison Fellowship is the nation's largest Christian nonprofit serving prisoners, former prisoners, and their families, and a leading advocate for faith-based, biblically-informed approach, biblically approaches to criminal justice and uh, incarceration. So we were founded in 1976 by the late Chuck Colson, who is a counsel in the Nixon administration, who was implicated in the Watergate scandal. Before he served time in the federal prison system, he discovered uh, his Christian faith and turned to the Lord. And then after he served his time, he felt a calling of conviction to remember and serve those he left behind, to follow mm. that Matthew 25 mandate. So mm. inspired by his leadership and legacy, we reached 250,000 prisoners each year, trying to give them the skills, the community, the resources they need to pursue good citizenship while they're incarcerated and while they're behind and when they return to our communities. 
Our flagship programs include our Angel Tree program, where we work with over 10,000 churches each year to provide a Christmas present uh, to a child who has a parent behind bars on behalf of that mom or dad in prison. So just a critical way for the church to show gospel love during a really challenging time of the year and to really push uh, Christians to engage and serve those families year round. Mm-hmm. We also have our Prison Fellowship Academy, which is an intensive 500-hour character education program that helps people in prison identify the hang-ups, the heartbreak, the history that has led to their criminal behavior and to help them discern what it looks like to pursue good citizenship and redemptive leadership while they're incarcerated and when and if they ultimately return to our communities. So most of our work, most of our folks do that work in the trenches in these communities. But then we have a team that combines that direct experience with a Christian worldview and really tries to identify what's a biblically informed approach to how we think about sentencing, prison culture, second chances, reentry and policing as well in the past few years. Yeah, and with that in mind, David, you wrote recently, and part of it had to do with the statistic I'd never seen. 43% of men and women serving time in prison have a history of mental health issues and challenges. How does that inform what you guys do? And to your piece that you wrote, how does that inform the way we police and the way we think about prisons and people getting back into culture? Absolutely. Well, May, we're wrapping up... uh, Next few days, Mental Health Awareness Month, and I'm so grateful that over the past years, we've really seen the church help break the stigma surrounding mental illness and serious mental illness in their congregations and communities. And those challenges of loneliness, of crisis, of alienation, and mental health aren't new to Prison Fellowship. We see that so much in the individuals that we serve each day um, in our programming behind bars and the families who are impacted. And we want to see a criminal justice system where their God-given dignity is affirmed throughout the process, whether it does have to result in an arrest or incarceration or a deflection from the justice system entirely based on what's safe, what's just, and what's appropriate. And those mental health crises that Americans are finally talking about openly, they're not new to the brave men and women who are serving in law enforcement each day. They're encountering those challenges with substance abuse, serious mental illness, homelessness, crisis situations each and every day on the beat. And that's why it's so critical for them to have the training to navigate those complex, difficult, uncertain situations with compassion and care, both to ensure safety for civilians who are in need, but also to improve job satisfaction, well-being, and morale among officers, especially as so many departments are struggling right now to find, keep, and retain good staff to stay on the job. Yeah, I do want to talk a little bit more about the uh, Law Enforcement De-Escalation Training Act. It's something that Prison Fellowship proudly supported. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that act entails? Absolutely. So after the murder of George Floyd back in 2020, we saw many police departments try to step up and improve the quality of training for the officers in their care and, and under their leadership. But we saw two major challenges during that time. One is that a lot of smaller rural departments often struggled to have the resources, the funding, and the staff to provide quality training. So there was often a resource constraint, uh, especially during COVID-19 and the impact on uh, local and state budgets. And second was the challenge of often kind of folks coming out of the woodwork, offering a training and departments and sheriffs and police chiefs discovering over time that sometimes that training wasn't high quality and was actually even counterproductive to hmm. uh, safety and success, both for officers and for the people in crisis wow. they were called to protect and serve. Wow. So that challenge of kind of a resource um, issue and then a challenge of quality control 
really inspired uh, law enforcement, faith-based groups, mental health organizations, and Democrats and Republicans on Capitol Hill to work on this together. So back in 2022, Senator Cornyn and Senator of Texas, Republican, and Senator Whitehouse, Democrat from Rhode Island, introduced the Law Enforcement De-Escalation Training Act. So one was to create a really solid funding stream from at the federal level to go out to state and local governments and really make sure the dollars go out to smaller agencies that might not have the ability to kind of navigate a, a complex federal set of red tape and you know bureaucratic processes for a grant. And second, to establish really quality training standards about what good training looks like for de-escalation, alternatives to use of force, crisis response, dealing with a suicidal situation or a civilian. And so this bill got, out, got over the finish line back in December 2022, and we are really grateful, given the Illinois connection with you all, the real importance of Senator Richard Durbin, Chairman of the Judiciary Committee, and getting that over the finish line. And just a great coalition. So groups ranging from Prison Fellowship, United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, to Major County Sheriff's Association, the National Sheriff's Association, as well as mental health organizations like National Association on Mental Illness. So really great coalition that got a very solid police uh, innovation reform through in a divided Congress and yeah. uh, hope to see some more successes in the years to come. I mean, just the fact that you got something through Congress. Is- Seriously. <laughs> right. Impressive. Impressive. That's right. David, Aubrey and I are both pastors. A lot of what we talk about on this show is the church. We want the church to kind of lead the way and do well. So uh, what's a word that you would have to pastors of how to even begin these conversations within their own congregations so people think more biblically about, mm. you know, people in prison? What would you say to pastors? Absolutely. Uh, I'd say, one, just to be aware of those who are in your congregation who are correctional officers, who who mm-hmm. are working in police departments each day, or social workers, who are really on the front lines of caring for people in crisis and serving those who are vulnerable or those impacted by crime and incarceration, and really creating spaces in those congregations where their unique spiritual needs, challenges, and vulnerabilities are, are heard out, are met, are affirmed, confirmed, and supported. And to really uh, give them those spaces where they can uh, really live out those specific callings as sites of servant leadership. And second is just to be involved in a Second Chance Month. This is an opportunity that Prison Fellowship has each and every April to raise awareness about the challenges uh, to opportunity faced by the one in three American adults with a criminal record. And that includes both people who have served time in prison or jail, but also the wider number of people who have some type of interaction with the criminal justice system that creates at times unnecessary barriers to their safety, stability, and success. And I think one benefit of Second Chance Month is by creating that space, we create situations where people are able to be open and vulnerable about their interactions with the criminal justice system. I mean, even the statistic one in three American adults with a criminal record. That number, I think, just challenges people and really unlocks really critical conversations about what wow. it looks like to promote reentry success and just better outcomes um, across the criminal justice system as a whole. Oh, so fantastic. David, where can people connect and uh, find out more about your work and Prison Fellowship at large? Absolutely. So, Check out prisonfellowship.org. That's kind of the go-to resources for ways to be involved, both an advocacy, angel tree program, direct service to families. Um, if you're interested in working more on advocacy, check out the uh, Justice Action Center at Prison Fellowship, where there's uh, ready-made opportunities for you to encourage change by your state and federal lawmakers, the White House, and Congress. 
And if you really are discerning a desire to really dive deep into what it looks like for Christians to change law and culture surrounding criminal justice, I would encourage you to check out the Justice Ambassador Program, which is an intensive grassroots mobilization and volunteer opportunity with Prison Fellowship to learn how to write op-eds, letters to the editor, meet with your lawmaker, and promote change in your neighborhood, church, and community. Oh, sounds so awesome. David Jimenez is an advocacy expert for Prison Fellowship, also is the Senior Manager of Government Affairs at Prison Fellowship as well. David, thanks so much for being here with us today. Thank you. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. So thrilled that you are with us today. Brian, we've kind of talked around and about this documentary, but I finally watched it. Have you watched the Hillsong documentary on Hulu yet? No, I haven't seen any of it. Obviously, I've seen some stuff on Twitter and such, yeah. but not seen it at all. So I sat down specifically to watch it so we could talk about it on the show. And then Kevin came down and we were both just like, next, next, next. We haven't finished yet, but it is fascinating. Now, so you I just will, kept watching and watching and watching. We just kept watching. We're going to talk a little bit more about it later on this week, so I won't spoil everything. I, It's interesting because it's definitely a... At least the first couple episodes are very Carl Lynch specific. He's oh. interviewed in it. He is he is sort of the major like focal point of the first couple episodes. Then we'll talk about this a little bit later. It moves into uh, what the documentarians are calling the bigotry, or at least describing as bigotry at Hillsong Church related to issues mm. around sexuality. I, mm. it wouldn't be, I mean, it's an orthodox position. So I, I think that's actually what I want to talk about later. But here's what was fascinating. A lot of it focused on just the, the rise of Hillsong. And at one point, there were over 35 Hillsong services being held every Sunday Hillsong, New York, which is what Carl Lentz pastored, became Hillsong East Coast. And they were having services all weekend until they had a 9 p.m. service oh, on Sunday. Huh. So and they showed images, Brian. I don't I knew it was a mega church. I did not realize like people waiting in line, thousands of people waiting in line down the street around the corner just to get into church on a Sunday. Like this is like a concert like well, i remember a, hearing it described as like a broadway show like another broadway show the way yeah. people did and tried to get in i mean i had i had no idea that it was i knew it was big i don't mm. think i understood what it was by 2015 there are uh 30 hillsong locations around the world generating a hundred million dollars annually the documentary made note that that was largely untaxed um <laughs> But sure. it's interesting that they also had like levels of givers. So uh -oh. this we're is get, this is going to get nasty, isn't it? It gets nasty. So as a church, renewal church, we're trying to figure out how do you talk about generosity? How do you talk about giving, especially like inflation? Mm -hmm. How do you do a better job about being faithful to talk about it? Um, but they did things like they had like a pyramid of givers and they would call you a, I don't know, they had different names for it. You're a legend or you're a whatever. You're if a you gave the, the highest tier, got to sit in the VIP section on okay. Sunday morning. Stop. I swear, or according to the documentary, I should say, 
the next tier got like a coffee with Brian Houston or a coffee with Carl Lenz. The next tier got so basically there were gifts or prizes or rewards associated with the amount of giving that you did and people now i okay people on the documentary talked about how and i think i don't know that this is the church's fault but maybe people felt pressure to be able to give and so some people were tired going into debt going into credit card debt things like that in order to give to the church I don't know that you can blame the church for that or or maybe if they pressured, pressured, pressured people to be a part of it. But one of the questions that they interviewed someone and she asked, what happens when growth becomes the goal? Growth mm-hmm. financially, growth n- numerically. And you saw a picture of it on this documentary. And now I, you know, we'll talk again. There are good things about Hillsong, but generally speaking, I this was a... Not just a mega church. Like, this to me was different than, like, a Willow Creek. This mm-hmm. is, like, when we talk celebrity culture, this, I've never seen anything like it. Like, this is celebrity culture, money culture, status yeah. culture. Yeah, on steroids. And in New York, Carl Lentz was the heart of it. Like, it, the thing was built around him. So. Did you, speaking of Carl Lentz. So we people should know who the, he is. As oh, great talked. question. He was, great point. He was the hype priest that we've talked about, right? Like yeah, he was yeah. He was the lead pastor at Hillsong and, New York, you know, right. Justin Bieber's pastor and right, things like right. that. Yeah. And he ended up having affairs mm-hmm. and all of this stuff. So yeah. you said he was interviewed. This is clearly he's trying to put his reputation back. Absolutely. You, how did you leave the documentary parts with him feeling about him? Yeah, I mean, gross. Sympathetic? No, no, no not no. sympathetic at all. Not absolutely not sympathetic. Now, I haven't watched the when we where we ended. They were about to move into interviewing his wife, mm. but there was no sympathy for me because here's a guy who is running, let's say, at the height of Hillsong, New York, thirty five services. He's doing all of them. Mm-hmm. And so here's a guy who did not know when to say no and did not know how to rest and did not empower other people in his church to lead yeah. or to preach or to whatever. Like he I think he really liked being the star. Now, they did interview Justin Bieber and Justin said he went and lived with them during a hard time in his life. And it was just a wonderful, normal family, um, humble family. Carl Lentz talked about how it mattered as a family that they were healthy, that they had a good marriage, that they had healthy kids because, you know, they were leading such an effort. They didn't have room to fail. But meanwhile, he's having an affair. Yeah. They interviewed the woman he had an affair with, and he specifically told her, like, don't look me up. What I didn't like is that he sort of is like... um, What's the Shakespearean phrase? Heavy is the head that wears the crown. He's doing mm. a little and and I wanted to be careful because you and I complain a lot about our own leadership sometimes when we feel sad or sorry for ourselves. He was doing that on this massive scale, kind of like you don't know what it is to be me. And I yeah. think he's probably right. Like, I think we don't know what it is to be him and we don't know how heavy that crown is. But also he chose to wear that crown. And that's the part where I didn't feel much sympathy. He didn't take breaks. He didn't fight against celebrity. 
he made himself a celebrity. And it does seem like he lied to a lot of people, like about who he was mm. and about Hillsong's stances on certain things. He accepted oh, certain people that later, for instance, there we'll talk about this later, but there was a homosexual guy on their worship team as one of the main leaders. And um, Carlin's acted like he was open and affirming. But then later, Hillsong, of course, came out saying we're not. And so that hurt that guy. And I think that was like a misuse of his power. And um, uh, certainly the kind of celebrity perks, they they did some they did some things on the costs of his jackets and his shoes. <laughs> and, you know, so let me ask um, you a difficult yeah. question. Yeah, because I'm going to go watch. I, I do want to see it's, this. It's fascinating to watch. Let's ask the biggest question that could be. Okay. Is this actually a church? So they were beginning to call it a cult. Interesting. And and I would say it certainly was a cult of celebrity. I think they probably did great things for the city of New York. Um, helped the homeless, you know, were active in the city. I don't I don't know. I think it's a valid question, Brian. Is it a church? I think it probably was meant to be a church and started as a church and lost its way. Yeah. Yeah. Because it feels more like an entertainment event. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like at these 35 services, are they doing children's ministry? I right. don't think so. I don't, I don't, I, like, I don't know. It, you know. It feels like a status symbol event place to be. Right. And that's never what the church was supposed to be. So, okay. So Hillsong. Yeah. What's, it's the Hillsong. That's on Hulu, you said. It's on Hulu. I can't, it has an official name. I can't think of what it is, but you'll see it because it's got a picture of Carl Lentz almost looking like Jesus. He does have Jesus hair. Yeah, but we'll talk. Now. I want to talk about one other issue probably in tomorrow's show. Um, gotcha. From the documentary. But anyway, fascinating, fascinating stuff. All right. Well, coming up next, Brian, we talked about some heavy things. Let's share some good news when we return. Mm. We'll end the show with a little bit of a palate cleanser. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson, alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. It is the end of the show on Tuesday evening. We hope you're headed home to a lovely family dinner. Maybe you're going to sit outside in this, like, 90-degree weather or whatever we're having. It's so crazy. think summer is officially here, Brian. We can officially say it. No doubt. No more snow. Summer has arrived. No more snow. There's no more snow coming. All right, Brian. I thought we would end the show with some good news. We've covered heavy and hard topics today related to the church, related to complicated relationships, related to all that crazy stuff at Target. So we're just going to end with some positive stories from the fun. week where they aggregate good news stories of the previous week. So I will start with the first one. You ready for this? I'm ready. Okay. A fake egg could boost... California condor breeding programs. I've been wondering about the California condor breeding programs. <laughs> it's been on my mind a lot too, Brian. <laughs> a 3D printed high tech egg. Who thought you'd ever like even say that sentence in the world, nope. right? A 3D printed high tech egg could be the key to helping the critically endangered California condor. At the Oregon Zoo, when California condors lay their eggs, staffers move them from the nest into an incubator. This is done to protect the eggs, and the zoo wants to know as much as possible about nest conditions in order to replicate the atmosphere in the incubator. The smart egg was created to gather data from the nest with the shell made of bird plastic, bird-safe plastic. Inside, there are sensors that monitor the temperature of the nest and how the egg is moved. 
animal ecologist Scott Schaefer and bird scientist Constant Wo- Constance Woodman made the egg and died at the same blue-green hue as real condor eggs. The condor parents who sat on the eggs for two months did not appear to notice it was fake, and their chick is now back with them. Once the breeding season is done, the data will be analyzed and used for future incubator settings. It's just a really cool use of technology that will only get better, Schaefer told the New York Times. Fascinating. The most fascinating thing from that story is this. If you had to guess for the name of a bird scientist, wouldn't you guess something like Constance Woodman? (laughs) (laughs) I am Constance Woodman. I am Constance Woodman, bird scientist. You're right. That is like from a tv show right there she works at parks and rec in indiana <laughs> they like they would have this special outfit like that looks like a bird side like i'm constance woodman <laughs> all right number two north carolina woman becomes a mom and doctor oh. in the span of 24 hours whoa Two of the biggest moments of Abby Bailiff's life happened in just 24 hours. On May the 3rd, she gave birth to her child, Bodie. And on May the 4th, she graduated from University of North Carolina Greensboro School of Nursing with her doctorate degree. Man, what are you doing with your life, Brian? Uh, seriously, the Thomasville, <laughs> North Carolina resident told Good Morning America she was due a week before graduation and started to get nervous when that day came and went. On May 2nd, her doctors decided to induce. It was not the original plan to be that close to graduation, but <laughs> Bodie had other plans. She had a safe delivery and was released from the hospital the afternoon of her graduation. After going back and forth on whether or not to attend the ceremony, Bailiff decided she couldn't miss. Once I got there and I walked in, I was like, I'm so glad I came, she said. It was an overwhelming feeling of accomplishment. Her husband and new baby cheered her on from home watching via FaceTime. How cute. Wow. That's amazing. Wow. I did not want to like put clothes on after my kids were born besides Crazy. pajamas. So I can't yep. imagine graduating. All right. Indoor Vertical Farm brings fresh produce and jobs to Compton. Just look up and up and up. A new indoor vertical farm is open in Compton, California. It's designed to grow up to 4.5 million pounds of leafy greens every year the plenty compton farm takes up a city block and is described as the world's most technologically advanced indoor vertical farm the produce is grown in a controlled environment without sunlight on vertical towers that are almost two stories high indoor farming uses less water and land is being touted as one way of getting plenty of fresh affordable produce into more areas while also creating jobs Plenty was very committed to making sure that the people they hired actually came from the city, came from this community, and that is what they've done. Compton Mayor Emma Sheriff said, adding that 30% of the farm's employees live in Compton. It's amazing. Uh, there's a Constance Woodman joke in there somewhere. I don't know it yet, though. Gonna, <laughs> You'll find it. You'll find it, Brian. I believe in you. Speaking of Constance Woodman, studies find listening to birds sing can improve your mental well-being. The next time you hear a bird sing, stop and listen. Your body will thank you. Two recent studies found that seeing or hearing birds can be good for mental health with the benefits lasting for hours. The special thing about bird songs is that even if people live in a very urban environment and do not have a lot of contact with nature, they link the songs of birds and vital and intact natural environments, Constance Woodman said. Nope, just kidding. Emil Stobe, (laughs) an environmental neuroscience graduate student, said, the easiest thing to do is just 
Try to be aware when out of the house, adding, with this little step, you can be one step closer to getting those beneficial effects or enhancing the time Mm. that you spend outdoors. I do like bird song. They're nice. It's nice to hear birds just like tweeting and making music for us. Except when it's right. We've got some birds that will uh, show up (laughs) right outside our bedroom window at like five in the morning. Yeah, no bueno. Mm -mm. No, no, those birds. You know what's worse? Chipmunks. They sound like birds. They just go like... It's they true. do that at our house at like 5 a.m. And it is horrible, horrible. You think they're cute, but they're annoying. Another animal story before you read our last one. Yeah. Uh, the other day, Madeline and I were going for a walk and we look and there was like a baby opossum. No. Underneath our bushes. And I was like, no. Oh. And then later we were all in the backyard and our little dog Pippa went running and all of a sudden came face to face with the baby opossum and the baby opossum started hissing. No. And ran away. And I was like. Do is there more than one baby opossum? Well, I'm here? also like where there's a baby, there's a mama, right? So like, yeah, ooh, I'm a little about what we're gonna find here? What? In the oh, months, that's it was funny terrifying. to see my ten pound little like dog <laughs> and this baby opossum who are never gonna do anything to each other. Right, have a little face off moment. <laughs> and the opossum started hissing and then ran away. It was funny. Yeah, that's scary. I don't want a possum near my house, let alone like in my yard. So, ee. I have I told you this? Our neighbors have a woodpecker. No. Oh, it's terrible. Terrible. I mean, it's not a pet. It like comes to their house and just like gnaws on their back porch. It's terrible. It's so loud. That's the worst. Yes. Yep, All right. Funny. Final good story. I like this one, Brian, because it's about a diamond ring. Diamond ring is discovered at a wastewater treatment plant 13 years after being lost. Gosh. The diamond ring that went down the toilet drain 13 years ago is back on Mary Strand's finger. (laughs) Ah, you want on your finger? Okay. All right. It's going to take me a minute to recover from that. The ring was a gift from her husband, Dave, in honor of their 33rd wedding anniversary. Strand told the news that's why she felt so bad about losing it. I truly dove for it, and it went down the drain, she said. Dave, who owns a drain and sewer company, tried to find the ring, but it was gone. Fast forward 13 years. In March, workers at a regional water treatment in Rogers, Minnesota, saw something sparkling in the debris and pulled out a ring. Mechanical maintenance manager John Tierney posted on social media about the piece of jewelry and asked people whose wedding rings had fallen down the drain to get in touch. Strand submitted a photo of the ring, and after two jewelers agreed it was a highly likely match, she was reunited with her long-lost No way. Okay, I mean, I'm glad she found her ring, but like... 13 years in a sewer? There's not a good... I mean, I don't think I would ever put that on my finger again. It's not like it's like a like a fabric that's taking stuff. It's a, it's a diamond. I think, I think I'd so wear you think it. You, you, you think you could it? really, really clean it? I think Thir- so. 13 years in, like, down the toilet? Yeah, I think you're using more than just tap water and, and, and like, dish detergent. I think you're using some bleach product of some sort or something but i would do it it's not like like i said okay. if it were like a fabric if they're like hey we found a shirt that's been found here. <laughs> it's a little different than the ring oh, i hope so wow wow all right well there's some good news and maybe some gross news for you hey we'll be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m for brian from i'm aubrey sampson and you've been listening to the common good on am 1160 hope for your life 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.